Storm Matters. My name is Angela Shakers. I'm the hostess for today's show, and I'm with Nick McDaniels at the Family Justice Center, which is the center that serves clients gone through or going through domestic violence. And you will hear today to tell about that program and some of the things that have become the community resource here in Tampa, Florida. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. Thanks, Thanks for being willing to interview me today and share about the center. And I'm just going to let you tell us what, what you all do here and the services that you provide and how you got to this place because it's a beautiful Facility, and, and I know you offer tons of services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so how, how did this all come about? about? Well, first, 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 thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, um, this, this actually started in San Diego, so the other, other side of the country from, from us, um, um, with their elected, elected district attorney, and his name is Casey Whitman. And he, he as, as a prosecutor, was realizing that he was having a really hard time prosecuting domestic violence cases. And the reason for that is to kind of explore it is. For a, for a victim, victim of domestic violence, first, first of all, it's one, one of the only crimes that is almost always committed by someone that the victim loves. Most, most of the time, if your person has snatched in the parking lot, lot you're going to go, go ahead, ahead with prosecution and you want the bad, bad guy away. away. But, but when something, something like this, excuse me, it's, it's, it's a lot, a lot more, more difficult to, to move forward with that because somebody, somebody that you care about is probably somebody you plan to spend your life with and you have a future with and you have children with. So it's, so it's really, really difficult. So, so he, he actually started, started bringing in service and realizing that, you know, you know sometimes it was going to be really difficult for that young single mom to make it on her own without, without economic assistance that, that this partner or batterer or provided. So, so he, he would bring in economic services. He brought in counselor services, supportive services, and all, and all these different things. And, and his goal, goal really was, was to be able to prosecute cases successfully. He's a prosecutor. The initiative included starting centers at 15 different sites in the country, and they were picked partly on the merits of the grants that each community wrote. There were hundreds of applications for it, but also in part because the federal government wanted to have different kinds of communities so that other communities could model after them. So for example, um, Brooklyn, New York was one site, so obviously very, very urban. Um, and another site was by the Sitka Indian tribe in Alaska. I don't know that you could get much different than Brooklyn, New York mm -hmm. when you're looking at that. So it really was a variety of different kinds of locations. And the goal really was to Twofold. One was to provide services in that community. The other was to serve as a model for other communities to get family justice centers started. So the Family Justice Center here in Hillsborough County was lucky enough to be one of that original 15. So we were one of the first ones to get started up. Um, we opened in, our soft opening was in September of 2006. Mm -hmm. And our grand opening was in October of 2006. So it's been three years now. Mm -hmm. um, very cool, I think, that we started our center. Our grand opening was during Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. So every year we celebrate Domestic Violence Awareness and our anniversary mm -hmm. at the same time. So Which is in October this month. October, mm -hmm. yep. It's Great. October of every year. Um, so we're now looking at Domestic Violence Awareness. Unfortunately, it's being more necessary than ever when you look at the rates, at least here in our community and really across the country, are dramatically rising. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's for a particular reason based on some of the um, financial situations that people are going through with foreclosures and job losses? Is there any data to support that? or There is some data actually that does support that. And if you look at the research on um, fatality assessment or lethality assessment and trying to predict or look at what types of cases are more likely to end in homicide, um, one of the risk factors is unemployment and mm -hmm. financial stress. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a part of it. But we can't look at financial stress as causing abuse mm -hmm. um, because it doesn't. And mm -hmm. if, it, if, it, if that were the case where people were financially stressed, 
they'd be punching out the boss at work that fired them mm-hmm. and not necessarily going home and then beating up their wife or their girlfriend. Um, so it, it doesn't lead someone to be abusive, and especially if you look at that as the whole pattern of abuse, the psychological abuse, the intimidation, the you know isolation, using your children, all those pieces that go into domestic violence, it doesn't lead to that, but it can lead to increased violence in a relationship where there's already violence and can definitely lead to an increased risk of homicide. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that's part of what's happening across the United States. Um, like I said, here in Norfolk County, um, the homicide rate has more than doubled in the last two years. Mm-hmm. So it's been dramatically different. Um, it doesn't seem to be that high across the country. We're still, you know, numbers take a while to all come in. It's looking like it's 30 or 40 percent higher, though, than it was the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that those rates are higher across the country. Mm-hmm. And what exactly are the services that are offered at the Family Justice Center? We have had, we've tried, actually, in setting up this program, we met a lot with survivors of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And many survivors of domestic violence who were kind enough to share their um, thoughts with us as far as what kinds of services do we need to have all in one location. So part of it is looking at immediate safety and um, security kinds of needs. So if someone needs to get to shelter, they can come here and we'll help them get to shelter. They don't have to come here first, but they can. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone needs an injunction for protection, which in some parts of the country might be called a protective order or restraining order, that kind of a thing, they can come here for that. They don't have to go to the courthouse. Mm-hmm. If they need food or clothes, we have food and clothing here. They can get that. So there's a lot of immediate service that they can get, as well as a lot of long-term kinds of services like counseling support and economic support, um, help with transportation, mm-hmm. things like that, services for their children, because oftentimes we know the children are very much impacted by the domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the mom's struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, what I usually hear from moms is the reason they stay is because of their children, and the reason they leave is because of their children. Mm-hmm. So they stay because they want a roof over the child's head, they want the child to have a father, mm-hmm. they want that stability there. But then they leave because they realize that all of that isn't worth the abuse that they're tolerating or that their children are witnessing and mm-hmm. maybe being a part of. Mm-hmm. So then they leave. So we also have services for the kids there. So basically it's you know 20 different on-site partners here from different agencies, both private and government, who are working together. I like to say it as it doesn't, you work as one team, mm-hmm. and the only difference is you get paychecks from different places. Mm-hmm. So we're all here to serve as one team for that victim of domestic violence so that Oftentimes, she doesn't even realize she's getting services from all these different agencies, mm-hmm. but that's okay. I mean, mm-hmm. it could be Santa Claus. It doesn't matter as long as mm-hmm. she's getting what she needs. We want her to be able to get everything as conveniently as possible. Mm-hmm. We also have evening hours so that um, it can be a little bit more convenient for folks, and especially for those um, injunctions for protection, mm-hmm. to be able to come in the evening, fill out all that paperwork, go to work the next day, come back after work, and have everything all done. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, they would have had to be at the courthouse by 5, would have been there for hours, um, it's a much more difficult process before. So we've tried to take away as many barriers as we could to getting the help we need to get safe. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So when someone comes in, uh, they might not know that they could get everything done literally while they're here, mm-hmm. and you kind of explain some of the services and the process and that type of thing. If someone came to us, for example, a lot of times what happens is they'll come in saying, I need an injunction for protection. So they'll meet with one of our staff, and if it's me, you know, I'll sit with them and say basically, you know, tell me why you're here today. Mm-hmm. What is it that you're looking for? And I'll hear their story and what they're looking for, and oftentimes there are other services that they need as well. So with that, we can connect those services. 
And then I'll also ask them questions because there might be some things they didn't tell me about. For example, we always ask, do they have pets? Mm -hmm. Because very often, 80% um, of women who are in shelter report that their pets were also abused. Mm -hmm. But very often they don't want to leave because they don't want to leave that pet at home mm -hmm. at the risk of the pet being harmed. So we ask that question because most people would not come in and think to ask us, do you have services for my pets? Mm -hmm. um, and we don't hear, but the shelter does now, so we have some things we can work out with the shelter. Mm -hmm. So people are surprised. They usually, when I ask them, do they have pets, they kind of look at me like, why are you asking me that? Mm -hmm. But there's a reason for it, mm -hmm. you know, and we, we try to look at all the reasons that might keep someone from being safe so we can ask that. Mm -hmm. So we ask a lot of questions, and anything we can't get them right at that very moment, because it's not always an attorney just happens to be free or a counselor happens to be free. Mm -hmm. um, we can actually pull up all those schedules and directly schedule them for those appointments. Mm -hmm. So they won't leave with a whole list of phone numbers. Here, go call all these people. But it's going to be more, here's your appointment on Tuesday at 1 o'clock for whatever service it is you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So whatever we can't get them right away, we try to get them as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. That's great. And um, you had mentioned that you opened the doors about three years ago. What prompted you to get involved with the Family Justice Center? How did this evolve from not even being here to being this fantastic center that you have and great resource for the community? Well, personally for me, I started working um, with a master's in social work and I was a therapist. And I was working with individuals at that time who had been victims of sexual abuse. And as I was working with folks, they were often very traumatized by what, by what had happened to them. But what I started realizing is the system that was out there that was supposed to help fix things or make it better or you know provide justice um, often was almost more traumatizing than the actual abuse was. It's a very difficult system to work through. So then I started just personally working more on looking at systems kinds of issues and how do we bring the right players together? How do we make it so that people really know who's all working on this and how do we work together on it? Mm -hmm. So I worked at you know a couple different locations. Um, was working with troubled adolescent girls at a program called Kate Center for Girls and did a lot of systems work there and then just heard about this opportunity where they were looking for somebody to help start up the Family Justice Center here in Hillsdale County. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to be picked to do that and just started, luckily had already some connections in the community because mm -hmm. I've been working here for 15 years before that and just started pulling people together. And some of them were already pulled together working on this and they've come together to write the grants. So we got community leaders together to really look at how can we make this happen. So luckily, um, everybody bought in. Mm -hmm. Everybody, it was kind of like one of those I could have had a V8 moments. Mm -hmm. you know, like, why didn't we think of this a long time ago? Right, wow. Um, so we got people involved. Um, we had the federal funding, so that was a great start for us to be able to have some stability there. And it allowed us to really build a system um, of providers that really could come together, but also make sure most um, agencies that open up don't have to worry as much about security as we do. Mm -hmm. Most shelters are kind of hidden away, um, secret locations mm -hmm. with big fences. Well, we're in, we actually picked the busiest bus line in our county, to mm -hmm. be honest, um, in a very busy location, tons of people in and out all the time in this area, and with a great big sign out front. So we couldn't have barbed wire around the building, mm -hmm. and we're very open to the public. So we really needed to build in a lot of security systems to make sure that when people did come to services that they were safe, so we were able to put that infrastructure together using mm -hmm. technology, using some old-fashioned things like bulletproof walls, but mm -hmm. you know, also a lot of technology to be able to make sure that people were safe when they appeared. Mm -hmm. So got lots of people together, and like I said before, lots of survivors of domestic violence who were willing to 
let me pick their brain sometimes mm -hmm. for hours sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, what would you think about this or this? And, mm -hmm. you know, really try to put together a system that would work for people. Mm -hmm. So it is based off of the model that originally started in San Diego, but is there any significant differences in your program here versus some of the other ones? Actually, all of them are different from each other, and I think there was a lot of wisdom um, from the folks in San Diego who headed up the process, and then also the um, Office on Violence Against Women staff who were in charge of that grant, and they really wanted each community to make it individual to their community mm -hmm. and the services they had available and the needs that they had. So part of what's really different about ours is that we're much more of a social service-based agency. Mm -hmm. In um, San Diego, it's actually headed up by their district attorney's office. Mm -hmm. So it's in a big downtown building. It's part of the DA's office. Um, people who are coming in to prosecute are automatically kind of connected with their family justice center. Um, people who aren't prosecuting can also get services there mm -hmm. as well. But it's a different kind of a feel to it when it's headed up by, by a prosecution law enforcement kind of a right. model. Mm -hmm. um, we weren't able to get that going here, so we kind of took a different route mm -hmm. and really looked at who could we get on board, you know, what, what resources were available, mm -hmm. and kind of looked at it differently and provided more of that wraparound piece for mm -hmm. folks. Mm -hmm. That's great. And so you've had the community support and obviously um, been able to let the community know that the services is services are here. Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, any numbers as far as how many people are actually um, getting services or come through your doors? Mm -hmm. We actually have, um, in the three years now that we've been open, sometime during this month, we will serve our 5,000th family. Wow. So it's been busy. Mm -hmm. um, it's been really busy. What's great also is, as far as the number of new guests who come in for services, we have triple or four times that number coming back for services, which what that says to me is they're getting everything they're needing mm -hmm. here because they're coming back to get it. Mm -hmm. If people just came here once and then left, there's no point. Mm -hmm. People could have just gone to any office once and just left. So we want to make sure people are really coming back here for lots of different things mm -hmm. that they need. So we have four or five times as many people coming the first time returning. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, lots of folks coming in that way. And they're returning for like counseling or something like ongoing that? Ongoing counseling, ongoing support groups, um, ongoing meetings with attorneys. Typically, um, domestic violence divorces are really sticky and complicated mm -hmm. and drawn out affairs. Mm -hmm. um, so usually it's multiple meetings with an attorney for something like that. Um, there are some folks who have been coming to support groups here since we opened three years ago, mm -hmm. and they continue to come for that support, and also, honestly, to give a lot of support right. to new folks that are coming in. Right. Um, so it's an ongoing process, and I think people feel comfortable here. Mm -hmm. um, we had one family, actually, who they were living with the mom's sister, and they were in hiding, and mm -hmm. they were really worried he was going to find them, so they couldn't really play outside. They had to change schools, and they really you know, couldn't kind of join in there because they were really afraid he was going to find them. So they would come here sometimes a couple of times a week just to play in our playroom. Mm -hmm. His mom's sister didn't really, I mean, it was a smaller apartment. Mm -hmm. She didn't really have kids' toys there. They had to leave with nothing. So they would just come and hang out and play here because mm -hmm. they felt comfortable and safe while they right. were here. So that was a chance they had to actually come and be kids. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's not even that people are coming for a certain appointment. Mm -hmm. Maybe they just want to have a safe place for their kids. Maybe they need to use the computers for job hunts or mm -hmm. whatever. So lots of different reasons that people come back in for services. Okay. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Sounds like a, a safe haven that's sort of like a second home for the people that need some place to go to. We really try. Um, we've thought a lot about the words that we use when we're setting up the center. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, what do we call these people who are coming for services? Because 
victims is offensive. So a lot of mm-hmm. times the legal system uses that. You're a victim of a crime, and mm-hmm. they use that for a victim of a purse snatching or whatever. But you don't want to feel like a victim. Mm-hmm. And survivors, some people can't relate to yet. They mm-hmm. don't, even though they have survived mm-hmm. um, tremendous abuse, oftentimes they don't feel like a survivor yet. So we actually went for there are guests. There are guests in our facility here. We're here to help them feel comfortable and get what they need, just like you would a guest in your home. Mm-hmm. So you won't hear our staff saying, well, our client said mm-hmm. this or that or whatever. It's our guest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that, that little word and mm-hmm. the way we use it um, kind of shows the feeling we have for our folks. Right. It sets the tone. It sets the mm-hmm. tone, exactly. Mm-hmm. And when we do our satisfaction survey, we want to know, are people happy with the services? But the first question there is, did you feel cared for and respected? Because mm-hmm. to me, you measure what you care about. Mm-hmm. So I don't just care about, did you get the services? That's mm-hmm. a big part of it. But I want to know that you felt cared about and respected. And if you didn't, I want to know so we can try to fix it. Right. That so makes sense. So we really try to have a comfortable, homey. Um, when people first come and they meet with our staff, they're not sitting. They're sitting in a room that looks like a living room. Mm-hmm. They're not sitting across a desk from somebody. Mm-hmm. They're not sitting shuffling a whole bunch of papers. Mm-hmm. Um, when they come in... I actually put all my papers down and just sit and listen to them and mm-hmm. tell them why you're here today. Mm-hmm. And then I pick up the papers later and fill it all in from what they said. Right. I want to focus on what they're telling me. And that's really the way we train our staff. And um, we screen our staff to make sure that they're that's the way they want to work, mm-hmm. that they want to mm-hmm. treat people in that kind of a warm way. Right. And that seems like the first step sometimes for people who have been in a bad situation or felt like there was no hope to just have some care. Mm-hmm. And that's really a door opening for them to take that next step to proceed with leaving the situation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it also is they've been told what to do for Mm -hmm. so long and we don't tell them what to do. Right. We offer them options. Mm -hmm. Um, Here are, you know, different choices. Here are different services we could set up. Um, Some people are still in the abusive relationship. So we talk to them about safety planning while they're there. Mm -hmm. Some people are planning to leave. So we offer them options and you could do this or this or this. But really, all of it's up to them, mm-hmm. and there's no judgment however they decide to go. Right. Because um, domestic violence, people think, well, why don't they just leave? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of reasons why they mm-hmm. don't just leave. And mm-hmm. some of them are economic. Um, one mom that I worked with actually had a six-month-old baby, and she had quit work when she you know, was about to deliver, and they had agreed you know, for her to not go back to work. She was mm-hmm. a stay-at-home mom. But he was very violent, and she had actually gotten an injunction, gotten him out of the home, which is what all the professionals tell you mm-hmm. you should do. Um, but now she, he, even though he was ordered to pay child support, he didn't. Mm-hmm. So now the electric was turned off. And she came in saying, the words, I, I'll never forget this, her words to me were, I'm just going to have to take some punches and go back so I can feed my baby. Mm. But what a horrible choice mm-hmm. to feel like you have. Absolutely. So we needed to have all of those services there mm-hmm. to help her mm-hmm. so that she could look at that. But sometimes it's economic, but other times it's emotional. Mm-hmm. And all of us have been in relationships where we struggled mm-hmm. um, and we gave people second chances, whether mm-hmm. it was, you know, an addiction or gambling or, you know, they were cheating or mm-hmm. they, you know, didn't turn the toothpaste cap on, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it was, you give people second chances in the relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I think a lot of us have had relationships where you can look back and say, oh, I should have ended that a long mm-hmm. time before I did. Yes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these folks do that too. They mm-hmm. look back and say, oh, I should have. But when you're in the middle of it and you're trying to make it work, and mm-hmm. you're this person that maybe you have children with and mm-hmm. you maybe were planning on spending your life with, mm-hmm. it's hard to just say, boom, it's over. Right. No matter how bad the abuse might get. Mm-hmm. So we sit with people through that struggle mm-hmm. and realize that leaving is usually a process. Mm-hmm. And usually they leave and go back and leave and go back. Um, but they need to make sure it's right for them. Mm-hmm. And we're going to support them in however they need to do that. 
That's great. And do you serve men? I know there's not as many men who are abused um, through domestic violence, but there are men. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just um, see what, how many you get if you have mm -hmm. some average number and what that looks like as far as your services. Um, mainly because I know that when they come in, they go to a separate room, <clears throat> like you said, like a living room area. Mm -hmm. And um, being a counselor myself, I know that sometimes women feel intimidated if then there's a man, which mm -hmm. the man could be the one who's been abused mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about how you serve men and how that works here. Absolutely. Um, about 8% of our guests are men. So we do have men coming in. Um, the most typical, almost every single time, the guys are, I know I shouldn't be here. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They're even apologetic. Mm -hmm. You know, I know I shouldn't be here. This shouldn't be the place that I'm in. Mm -hmm. You know, this shouldn't be the situation that I'm in. Um, so they actually take some extra sensitivity in some ways to help them feel a little more comfortable mm -hmm. and not so ashamed and embarrassed about asking for help. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, our whole macho culture for a guy mm -hmm. to say I'm a victim of domestic violence is a really hard thing. Right. Um, and we try to look at our services both for men and for women as equal but individualized. Mm -hmm. So basically everyone, man or woman, has equal opportunities for all of the services, but we try to individualize with them, give them the choices of here are all of your options, which include nothing, mm -hmm. you don't have to do anything. Um, and it's the same with the men, and we don't um, meet with them any differently than we do the women. Um, have never had an issue, mm -hmm. but we meet with them in that same living room that we would meet with anybody else in, um, and try as hard as we can to help them feel comfortable, because mm -hmm. um, it is really, really extra hard for the guys. Right, it's right. Really hard and do you have support groups for men also? The, actually, the agencies that have the support groups right now, there haven't been enough men who are interested in coming to mm -hmm. a support group. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's, again, that whole macho culture. Mm -hmm. They're not as likely to want to sit with other people and talk about how right. they're feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so I know they would start them if it was needed mm -hmm. um, or that people would actually follow through and use it when right. needed, but they don't choose to come. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we don't now. It's much more individualized for the guys because mm -hmm. I think um, for them to sit in a group of guys and say, you know, my girlfriend beat me up or whatever mm -hmm. is really right that makes sense can you tell me um just a couple success stories i'm sure you have tons mm -hmm. over these past three years but what are some that really stick out in your mind about how somebody has come here utilized the services and really changed their life just because they were able to get help or get that support and care that they needed mm -hmm. um well the one that i told you about that um said she had to go home and take the punches. Mm -hmm. We were actually able to get her everything she needed so that she didn't have to go back with them. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was, the only reason she was considering was she felt like she couldn't take care of her baby on her own. Mm -hmm. um, so for her to be able to do that, and she wound up actually wanting to go back to work um, and needed to mm -hmm. just financially, but she wanted to anyway. So we were able to help link with her. There's a workforce alliance right down the building from us here. So we were able to link with them, help her with the job, the Center for Women pulled in, was able to help her also because they help with resumes and interview skills and mm -hmm. those kind of things. So they helped her with that. We were able to get her the economic assistance in that short term. In the longer term, we were able to get her transportation. Um, Meals of Success is one of our agencies. They were able to help her get a car. Mm -hmm. So we were able to put all those pieces together to help her mm -hmm. be able to stay safe. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably you know the one as far as that I personally worked with mm -hmm. that um, we really got to see some great success. Because mm -hmm. unfortunately, as executive director of the program, I don't get to do a whole lot of the direct work. Mm -hmm. um, we have people coming in for the service. I do sometimes, mm -hmm. but 
still am a social worker, so mm-hmm. if we're busy, I'm still going to jump in and help. Um, but I don't get to do as much of that. But definitely, you know, lots and lots of stories like that. And um, people who say, I, the, the one that really always gets me are the ones who said, you know, 10 years ago I tried to get free of this and I couldn't do it. It was all just too hard. Mm-hmm. But now you've got everything here in one place, so now I can do it. Mm-hmm. And then they do. They mm-hmm. follow through and they do it. So those are the ones to me that are especially kind of profound mm-hmm. um, because they've been trying for such a long time. And finally, once they have what they needed, there you go. They mm-hmm. can do it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. What a um, great way to serve the community and to just offer something that most people, you know, don't realize is needed. All the services put together, like you said, mm-hmm. and just that that whole thing can totally change someone's life. It can actually change a family's life because mm-hmm. if you think about the kids then getting into a healthier situation and yep. them being safe and not being abused anymore, if that's the case, is just, I know, life-changing Absolutely. for them. Absolutely. Um, so what are some of the struggles that you've come across being the executive director in, you know, opening and maintaining the center? Because I'm sure it's not easy. I know how it is working um, in nonprofit and with, you know, having to get grants and federal mm-hmm. funding. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Because this is just such a huge success story. And, of course, that's what my show is all about is <laughs> trying to tell people or share with them some of the things that we've endured or overcome. and how we, you know, get from point A to point Mm -hmm. B. I know a lot of it is not giving up, which you haven't. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the struggles along the way and the challenges that you've faced. Well, I think um, there probably has not ever in our history been a harder time to start a nonprofit than right now Mm -hmm. when you look at what the economy is. And the agencies that have been around a long time are struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, Government grants are just you know, shrinking or drying up completely. Mm -hmm. So all those agencies that have been around for a long time are turning more to private donors and foundations and corporations and groups like that to get funding. So that makes it really difficult for a new agency Mm -hmm. to get to any of the traditional sources of money. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of the grant applications that we've submitted, um, we've been told, well, you know, because of the funding issues we have, we can't fund any new programs. Mm -hmm. We have to just keep funding our our programs we've been funding, which makes total sense to me. I understand it. Right. But makes it really especially difficult for it. So part of it is the not giving up. And Mm -hmm. um, we've had some really, really um, passionate advocates Mm -hmm. out there that understand us and really value what we do. And Mm -hmm. the Children's Board of Hillsborough County is one of them who we were about to close um, Mm -hmm. about a year and a half ago now. We were literally, we had already called and canceled the electric and the phone and had boxes here. We were ready to pack up because it was that close to closing. Wow. We had a, a final funding piece that we really thought was going to come through. It actually been voted on that it was going to go through and at the last minute was taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were about to shut down and the Children's Board actually stepped up and rescued us, gave us enough money to keep us going and it's, has also helped fund us throughout, you know, ongoing funding as mm-hmm. well. There's also been some corporate support. Um, Verizon Wireless actually has given us $300,000. Wow, the, great. You know, started with early planning stages and on through just actually October 1st, the final um, step of that was a $15,000 check that brought it to that $300,000. Mm-hmm. So for really close to five years now, they've been supporting this project from the very early planning stages, mm-hmm. even before I was involved in it, all the way through to mm-hmm. the current. So without agencies and corporations like that um, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have had we wouldn't have made it mm-hmm. and then all of our partner agencies that are here none of them get are getting paid for their staff to be here mm-hmm. they're, they're all just contributing their staff to this project right so that of course their commitment 
even in these times of crazy budget mm -hmm. issues, um, to still continue to have their staff here and to recognize the value of providing that one-stop service um, has really, really been value valuable. Mm -hmm. This spring, actually, has five full-time staff that come here every day. Bay Area Legal Services has three full-time staff here every day. Realty Success has their whole program here. Mm -hmm. um, Gulf Coast Legal Services has their only host row county offices here. Mm -hmm. So these agencies and many more, I mean, these are just some of the examples, have really committed to support this project. Mm -hmm. So without really all of that coming together, and you're right, it takes perseverance and keep beating the drum, mm -hmm. keep getting out there and keep talking about it and keep really trying to help people understand so they can support it. Um, but I think that what you learn from the work that we do is Many of us who are counselors or work in this kind of a field work with issues that are horrible mm -hmm. and that are committed by people that hurt other people. Right. You know, domestic mm -hmm. violence, somebody hurt someone. When I worked in sexual abuse, someone hurt mm -hmm. someone. But what you realize with that is as much bad as there might be, there's so much more good. Right. And there are so many more people who, once they learn about you, mm -hmm. are willing to really step up and help. Mm -hmm. And that really helps um, balance the world a little bit, mm -hmm. I guess, for me personally. Because mm -hmm. it would be too easy to think about all these horrible people out. And they're not horrible people. I mean, there's people who've done horrible things. Right. But you kind of get bought into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of good out there. And mm -hmm. I think once people understand it, they're willing to step up and help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's the whole point is that when we give someone a chance to get out of a bad situation, then they in turn can become the better person and contribute mm -hmm. something better and more to the community, to the world, to their mm -hmm. children. Yep. Um, that's really what it's all about, which is what makes these programs so great. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see for the future of FJC? Do you see any big changes or any future plans along the way? I, I mean, I know that you know finances have a lot to do mm -hmm. with what happens, but obviously things are going to get better as time goes on mm -hmm. for all of us. So what does that look like for um, the center? we actually just got started with this month. It's called the Electronic Safety Deposit Box. Mm -hmm. And it's a new project we have started. And basically, in its simple form, is oh, people who are going through domestic violence situations are often carrying all of their paperwork with them, mm -hmm. their social security cards. Because what if they have to run? Right. They have it all with them. Mm -hmm. But what if he finds it? So they're carrying it all. So this is in a way to save it all electronically in a safe, password-protected kind of way that, that actually, again, Verizon is funding mm -hmm. and is free to them. So that's a new project we've gotten started that's really a pretty low cost mm -hmm. overall kind of a thing. But long term, what we really want to look at is integrating more the whole child abuse and domestic violence piece. Because mm -hmm. about 80% of the kids who were in foster care because of abuse, um, there was also domestic violence in that family. Right. And then also about 80% differently, maybe, but about 80%, again, also abuse the pets. Mm -hmm. So what you typically see is it's most often a male abuser, not that it's you know, can be a female, but statistically it's most often a male abuser, and most often it's a female victim. Mm -hmm. um, this is primarily a violence against women kind of an issue. As mm -hmm. much as we want to support and respect those men who are going through this, it's primarily violence against women. So as we're looking at that, we want to be able to provide comprehensive services for that child abuse piece as well as for that domestic violence piece. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a lot of work to try to integrate those services in our community mm -hmm. and the, with the ultimate goal of getting more of it all co-located here at the Family Justice Center. Mm -hmm. So if there are child abuse issues, all those services can be located. The ongoing services, not that investigation piece necessarily, right. but mm -hmm. those ongoing supports could all be co-located as well mm -hmm. so that we can really integrate that. So that's kind of the long-term vision. Mm -hmm. um, that we're currently working towards and really working in our community on. Right, that it's makes sense. It's helpful those systems together.
together. It's the right. same families, but right now they're being served separately. Right. The kids mm -hmm. are in one system and the adults are in another system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how can we kind of pull that together and make it, um, again, a little more coordinated for that family to go through so they don't feel like they're being pulled in 100 different directions. But I think it'll also be better outcomes just for the whole system. Right. So yeah. that's our goal right now. That's what we're working on. That sounds great. <laughs> and um, what would somebody um, be able to offer if someone wants to help or has a passion for people who have suffered domestic violence? I mean, obviously, we all know that money is tight these days and, you know, um, donations have gone way down across the board. But what are some other ways that someone could help or even if they knew somebody that was going through this and they didn't know what to do or how to do anything, what suggestions do you have for them? phrase um, that a lot of nonprofits use is giving of your time, talents, and treasure. Mm -hmm. All of those are equally important. So treasure is important. We obviously have to have the funding to keep going. But time and talent are just as valuable. Mm -hmm. So if people were interested in volunteering, um, any specific talents that they have, call us because there's lots of different ways we can use a lot of different talents. Mm -hmm. And even simple things people don't think of like ongoing maintenance of the building. Mm -hmm. We have a 22,000 square foot building here and sometimes there's little repairs or painting or things like that that need to be done. And if we don't have to pay a professional to do that, that's more money we can put into services right. and less money we need to get in for donations. Mm -hmm. So volunteers, we can do things like that. We also need volunteers who can be with the kids mm -hmm. so their parents can go and be able to talk openly mm -hmm. with other, you know, with their counselor or their attorney without the child having to hear it. Mm -hmm. So we need those kind of volunteers, office volunteers, all kinds of different skills right. um, that people can bring to the table. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely one of them. Donations, as far as things like when we have a clothes closet, mm -hmm. we especially always need kids' clothes. Mm -hmm. So most of the kids I know grow out of their clothes before they wear them out. Right. That's typically mm -hmm. how that works. Mm -hmm. So if people will, when they're considering where to donate their clothing, bring that here. Mm -hmm. That's a huge help. We have about 100 people a month use our clothes closet, mm -hmm. and about 60 of them are for children. Mm -hmm. So um, we definitely need clothes. We always need, kids are always hungry, mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like. Yes. Um, so individually wrapped, like snack kinds of packages, mm -hmm. cookies, crackers, um, juice boxes, all that kind of stuff so that we can have things for the kids when they're coming in with their parents. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many different ways that you might think are just small ways, mm -hmm. but really if we add them all up, it makes a huge difference for us right. and for those folks that we're serving. So mm -hmm. those are some simple ways people can get involved um, that we would love to have, you know, have people help with mm -hmm. um, definitely valuable mm -hmm. and if you know somebody who's a victim of domestic violence I think the first thing really is patience mm -hmm. that process we talked about of coming and going and how difficult it is to leave right very often the family and friends just get frustrated and give up right and oftentimes part of the pattern is that the abuser will try to isolate them from mm -hmm. family and friends mm -hmm. and somehow cut off that communication so the family feels like okay she's mad at us or she dumped us or mm -hmm. whatever um, but really she needs their support more than ever to stick with her and support her without being judgmental. Right. Um, if folks looked at our website, um, there's a ton of information about domestic violence. There's all kinds of safety training documents, mm -hmm. um, lots of different resources. So if somebody wants to learn just about that issue, they can do that from anywhere with a computer. Mm -hmm. um, and I would strongly recommend that people do that and try to understand it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's really being there and supporting. We get folks who come in here and say, and. Sometimes they say, my sister's a victim of domestic violence, but really, you know, it's them. Mm -hmm. we talk about, they're just not ready to say that yet. 
But sometimes it's really genuine that it really is a friend or a family member and they're right. struggling with how to support that person. Mm -hmm. um, so we're happy to talk with people about that and to try to offer those supports. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really, it's, sometimes it just takes patience and, and being there for that person on an ongoing basis. Right, because ultimately it's up to the victim, if you will, to make the choice to mm -hmm. move on and make the changes that they need to make. Right, and if she and feels like people are going to be judgmental of her, mm -hmm. you know, I told you he was like that, or I told mm -hmm. you he was just going to, that kind of stuff, they're less likely to reach out for that help. Right. So right. to try to, you know, even though you want to say I told you, because you did, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, to try not to and to try to just be there and be supportive. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. That, those are some good tips. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Well, Nikki, thank you for talking with me today, and I wish you the best of luck with the center and thank all you. that you want to achieve in the future and, you know, look forward to finding out more as the program grows. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I just wanted to share today how I got to this point in my life to actually be on air and interviewing other people about their stories and, again, sharing some of my own story. Seven years ago, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer and I was told that I needed to really just get my things in order, get my life together as far as being able to have everything in place for my children. My life wasn't going to last long. They didn't really know how long. They just knew that the cancer that I had was aggressive. And after two surgeries, they didn't feel that they were able to get all the cancer removed from my body. So at that time, I um, was quite discouraged and very sad, as one can imagine. And I thought the most important thing for me to do would be to tell my children my story, to tell them who I really was and how I became the person that I am. During that time, I struggled with what exactly to share with them and what not to share with them. They were much younger at the time. My daughters now are young adults. My son is still in elementary school. But seven years ago, of course, they were a lot younger. So I wrote my story starting from you know, the very beginning, my early years with my own family. And I had a couple of my very close friends read my story to make sure that it sounded okay, that it would be something that my children could comprehend and, and accept. And my friends came back to me and said, this is a book. This is a story that you have to share with others. You really have to let others know what you've overcome in your life and um, how blessed you've been. And initially I thought, ooh, I don't want to do that. That's so personal. Those are my things that happen in my life. Those are things that happen in my family. And I just couldn't imagine sharing that type of information with anybody. It was hard enough knowing that I was going to share it with my own children. But as things evolved, I ended up finding out about the ins and outs of trying to find a publisher and writing your story and writing a book and publishing a book and before I knew it I had um, a dear friend of mine paint a beautiful portrait 
and I ended up using that as a book cover. I found a great printer in the Tampa area and used them to print my book and they were just amazing. They helped me with so many things um, to get it just right. And I just thought, well, I'll print this book and see if it, you know, has any effect on anybody else, but I'm sure nobody would want to read my story or be interested in my story. It's just little old me. And initially I was going to order just a few books and people convinced me to order more than just a few, just in case. And as time went on, I ended up speaking at churches and local bookstores and on a couple of local cable TV stations both here in Florida and in California. And through that, my story has gotten out to many people. And during that time, I was just amazed at how many people came back to me, either by writing to me or in person or leaving me a phone message and just telling me that my story encouraged them or inspired them or it gave them hope. Um, I just was in awe of that. I couldn't believe that the things that I had been through and how I had overcome them or the fact that I was still here, still fighting that fight would be meaningful and powerful to other people. But I realized that many people, just like myself, needed to know that there was hope. And that really gave me a lot of healing over the things that I had been through in my life to know that my story, my life, it mattered because it helped other people. Sharing it and learning from it helped others. And that's just something for me that's very important in my life, is to not just be about myself, but to try and help others and be there for them and support them in some way. So it was an amazing experience to find that, that this story, my story, had that sort of impact on others. And I won't take the time today to tell you my whole story, but I will go over some of the highlights of it that probably are the things that impacted people the most. As I said, I, I started to write my story because I had found out that I had stage four cancer. And at that time, I just thought, wow, this is it. After everything I've been through, this is the end of my life. And what do I do with that? Where do I go from here? How do I live these last months or years, whatever it would be? And how do I make the most of that time that I have with my children, with my family, with my friends? But more importantly, how do I have a positive impact on my community, on the people around me? How do I leave a legacy that suddenly became very important to me? I always felt like my children would be my legacy. Of course they are. I felt like what I taught them and the experiences that I gave them would go on and on and on as they had children and grandchildren, etc. And I know that that's true. And I never felt like that wasn't enough. But when you're faced with death, you wonder, have I done enough? Am I enough? Did I give enough? Did I give it my all? And those are some of the questions that I asked myself at that time. And I really felt like I wanted to do more than what I had done in others' lives. And I had lived such a life of turmoil and obstacles and challenges 
that I really never had the time or the opportunity to do more for other people, to leave this legacy that I really wanted to leave behind. I didn't even really know at that time what it was I was, was supposed to leave behind. I just knew that I wanted to have a positive impact on others' lives. And I didn't know how to go about that. And as I said, through sharing my story, I have concluded that that's really what my purpose is for my life, is to share my story in the hopes of inspiring and encouraging others in their situations, but also to hopefully spark interest in them to want to share their own story. And that's how my business, Grief to Grace, evolved into more of helping people to share their story, to find healing in that, and then to find a creative way that is a true reflection of them to tell their story, whether it's in book form or art, music, poetry, whatever it would be that would really express the message about their life that would be one of meaning and importance to others. So that's my focus and that also again is why I have started my radio show Your Story Matters so that I can interview others on the air and let them share some of their story. And I'll tell you, some of my story, I still wonder myself, how did I get here? Um, How fortunate I am and just how blessed I've been is just, I still am always so grateful when I pause and think about all that I've been through and the fact that I'm still here. As I said, seven years ago was to be the end of my life and the end of my time here on earth. And I just believe that God just had another plan uh, for me. And I believe in that plan that the purpose was to be able to spend more time with my children and give them more of myself and help them along the way to become the adults um, that they are now, as and my son will be shortly or in a few years. And um, But also just to have a positive impact on others' lives and so when I wake up every day, I just feel, first of all, grateful that I woke up today because that's a blessing and that's a miracle in itself. But then I feel just excited about whatever the day holds and what I might be able to do to help someone else to feel encouraged and inspired or to, you know, spark that creative flow in someone and help them to see that their story matters and that they should share it and that there's something valuable in all of our stories. And when I look back to where I started in my life, again, I'm just in awe. Um, I grew up in a family um, that was quite dysfunctional. There was abuse, poverty, um, just a lot of different things going on that I felt created an environment of feeling neglected and abandoned and feeling like I had to be the adult, not the child. So it was quite hard to grow up like that. And I felt a lot of shame because of the poverty issues. I felt um, a lot of guilt. As a child, um, you often take on the guilt of how the adults around you are treating you. You think that you've done something wrong, that you're not good enough, that you've caused the problem. So that was a lot of my early foundation in life was that shame and guilt and 
I actually um, had been sexually abused by a family friend and that just deepened that sense of shame and guilt and just the feeling of not being worthy. And I just lived like that for so long. It was so familiar to me that it seemed normal. And some of you, I'm sure, can identify with that, whether you've been in the situations that I've been in or you've been in others where you grew up or lived with a lot of shame and guilt. But one of the things that happened to me that was very significant was around the age of three years old, I suffered a severe third degree burn. And I went into the hospital and had to stay there actually for a few months initially because the burns were so bad. I wasn't supposed to make it um, because things were just so bad for me at that time. And I was so young and so little and I remember being there alone. Um, of course, my family was at home. My mother and father weren't able to stay with me. And I felt so alone and so afraid. And I can remember just the smells of the hospital. I can remember actually being burned and the smell of burnt flesh. And for so long, it was just such a horrible memory. And it was something that I actually suffered from post traumatic stress from because I just had all of these feelings in me about that event bottled up inside but as I found healing over that through therapy and just being able to talk about what had happened I realized that while I was alone in that hospital I somehow felt that there was God that I could pray to this God that I knew of and how exactly I knew for sure, other than hearing family or friends talk about God or praying, I believed that my God would be there for me and would help me through this situation. And that's when I remember the beginning of my prayer life and praying to God that he would help me, that he would save me, that he would be there for me. And I've honestly never stopped praying since. Yes, there have been times where my prayer life has been less and times where it has been more, but I've never felt like God wasn't with me. I've never felt like I couldn't pray and God wouldn't hear me. And when I was just three years old, that was when that relationship with God, that commitment to holding on to that one thing that no one could ever take away from me, that's when it started. And so as I went through my life, during different periods, I would pray and I would just talk to God about what I was going through. And I have to believe that that faith that I have and that willingness to believe that there was something more powerful than anybody or anything around me was the thing that allowed me to survive all that I've survived. Because I have survived a lot. And sometimes when people read my story or hear my story, they say, it's just not possible that you could have gone through all this, that you could have endured all these things. And I just say, it doesn't seem possible, but yet here I am. And I really have to believe that that was just God on my side again and again. And even through the bad things, for whatever may have been allowed by God, for whatever may have been um, purposeful in my life, it was for a reason. When it all came together 
in my mind and in my heart when I found out about my cancer, I realized it was all for a reason. It wasn't meaningless. It was important because I learned from it. It was important because I endured. And now I can sit here today and tell others that yes, there is hope. And yes, prayer works. And yes, having faith makes a difference in your life. And if just one person gets that message, to me that's enough. And if my children can see that because they see how I live and they see how my life has evolved, that's wonderful to me. That's the best gift I could ever have. As I said, I had a lot of shame and guilt growing up. Um, I endured a lot because of my burn injury and going to the hospital and having multiple surgeries and having a um, lifelong scar was all very traumatic for me. And as life went on, it just didn't seem to get any better. I went back and forth from one home to the other with my family and again was impoverished, didn't have the things that I needed to have or that seemed normal to have. Um, sometimes gathering food out of the trash bins at the grocery store to find something that would be still good and we could take home and eat. There were just so many little things that were things that just really were painful and emotionally had an impact on me. And as time went on, I just became bitter and angry and I was always very shy, but I think my experiences in my childhood also created a sense of being very closed off to other people and not open to relationships, not even thinking that good relationships were possible. But time went on and fortunately I was able to meet someone that showed me true love, that showed me that despite my flaws, despite any mistakes I might make, I was a valuable person. I was lovable. That was the first love of my life, um, my high school sweetheart and my best friend. And I tell you, that person truly changed my life. Because when you don't feel lovable, and when you feel that your whole being is just shame and guilt, and there's nothing else there, and someone comes along and shows you, they don't just tell you, they show you that that's not true, that's life-changing. And over the years, I have held on to that feeling that this person gave me of being loved, of being accepted, of being enough. And I have just built off of that to find that place in myself where I can finally say, I am valuable, I am worth a lot, I am meant to be here for a purpose. Um, the things that happened in my life were not necessarily my fault. The things that I made poor choices about are things that I have to forgive myself for. The things that were done to me that were hurtful or painful or mean, I've had to find forgiveness for those people. And through forgiveness and letting go of the past, I truly have been able to come to a place of feeling whole and at peace with who I am and how I got here.
And as my life evolved, as I said, finding out about the cancer, I realized at that time, things just kept happening. There was just one thing after another that happened in my life. I had met my high school sweetheart and fallen in love and got married as soon as I turned 18. I just couldn't wait to start my life with him. And a little bit over a year later, we had our daughter, my, my oldest daughter. And that was my life. And I was content with that. And I was doing different things and learning things and just trying to make the most out of my life. But we didn't know what to do with the relationship we had. We didn't know how to be a family. We didn't know really how to be parents. Um, we both came from dysfunctional backgrounds and a place of not really knowing how does a family work? Um, how do you live productively and healthy as an adult? So eventually things unraveled and we separated and that was just heart-wrenching for me because I had no skills at that point as to how to deal with the relationship, how to communicate effectively, how to even understand my own feelings about what was going on. And sadly, a few years later, um, I was notified by phone that my husband was deceased. Um, he had died suddenly they never did find a cause for his death. And I'll tell you, at that time in my life, being so young, we were both only 27, to go to a funeral home and pick up a casket, to look for a burial site, to have that last time to say goodbye to the one that you love and that gave you so much life and so much hope is just a devastating experience and something that I still struggle with in some ways to deal with that pain because it's just embedded so deeply and I'm sure if you've suffered the loss of a loved one you know that pain but yet I know that that experience too was one that has taught me so much and has just changed my life in a lot of good ways and as time has gone on, that's what I've realized about my life, is that all these things have really taught me lessons. And they've showed me things that I would have never known had I not looked back and reflected and journaled or gone to counseling or talked about all the experiences that I've had. And again, that's why I'm here today, is to encourage and inspire you to look at your story, to look at the things that have happened in your life and learn from them and, and find healing so that you can be at peace about whatever it is, even the worst things, and then to share that with someone else who might feel like your words, something you got through, something you did to manage, saves them, gives them some hope, gives them that little tiny piece of something that was missing that they needed to know or that just makes them get up today and make a different choice to not give up, to not try and commit suicide, to not do drugs, to not drink alcohol, whatever it is that they're doing to avoid their own issues. Your story, your words can make a difference for them. 
and change everything. And that's what I hope to encourage and inspire the people around me to do. Because my story is no more important than yours. It's an amazing story. It's a God story. It's something that I'm grateful to be here today to be able to share. It's a story that I know my children will share when I'm no longer here and their children and hopefully their children and their children after that will have a piece of my story that they can learn from or that they can be encouraged or inspired from and that they can share with others. So I thank you today for listening to some of my story. And of course, if you would like to learn more, I have um, my second book coming out, More Grace. My first book, as I said, that I wrote when I found out I had cancer is Grief to Grace. And I have sold the very last copy of that, which is amazing to me. And um, I'm about to launch the second book shortly. And the second book talks somewhat about my past and my life and my experiences, but I really tried to focus on what it looks like to feel that shame and guilt and and how to get through those things that are obstacles in life to being all that you can be and, and the things that prevent you from knowing what your destiny is, what the plan is that, to me, God designated for you. And so in my book, I hope to encourage others to start that healing process if they haven't already. And I've also provided a companion guide to that, which is called Your Story Matters. And in the companion guide, I ask questions.